Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. James O'Hanlon has travelled Australia and the globe, uncovering the secret lives of insects and spiders. James has published more than 30 academic papers, and his work has appeared on ABC News, in National Geographic, The Conversation and Biosphere magazine. Today I'm talking to James O'Hanlon about his new book, Silk and Venom, The Incredible Life of Spiders. James, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Your book is all about spiders. Why do we need a book about spiders? Why are they important? Look, spiders are important, but I want to make it clear that spiders are awesome, I think is the (laughs) the main message I'm trying to get across here. There's this general uh, distaste for or suspicion of spiders in society, which I'm sure we're all aware of, and it couldn't be further from the truth about what spiders are. So the point of this book is to not be a field guide, to not be a textbook. The point of this book is to grab you by the ears and scream, spiders are awesome, uh, until you surrender in defeat. Well, chapter one headline reads, why don't we like spiders? And of course, we don't want to talk too long about why we don't like spiders. But in a nutshell, why don't we like spiders? Because we think we're supposed to not like them, is the short answer. If we look Spider fears and sort of dislikes are so universal that even psychologists sort of scratch their heads at it going, this really doesn't make sense. So they've been studying why this is the case. And when they actually look at possible new concrete reasons as to why we shouldn't like spiders, maybe they're dangerous, maybe they uh, are are dirty or something like that. When they actually study that, they go, actually, no, there's, there really pose no danger, they're actually quite beneficial to have around our homes and gardens. So there's nothing really to that idea. It seems to be that at some point, we've as a society have created this myth that spiders are bad. And that's just sort of perpetuated and gets circulated amongst families and peers and three horror movies and all that kind of stuff. Here's an encouraging story from your book for all of those arachnophobes out there. You woke up one night with a huntsman on your face. I did. (laughs) This would have been, I was a teenager, I think. And I just suddenly stirred with this sudden sensation of something on my cheek. And I just instinctively swiped at it with my hand. And in the blurry darkness, I just saw this leggy creature disappear off to the, the other side of the room. And... I just kind of had a giggle and, and went back to sleep. But what I find really interesting was afterwards when I was telling this people this story, they didn't just sort of giggle at it like I did. They went, oh, that spider was drinking your saliva. And I thought, <laughs> I thought hang on, that, that sounds weird. And it turns out this is, this is an urban myth that floats around the world that, that apparently spiders climb into your mouth at night and drink your saliva. Again, I'll say that it's an urban myth. There's, there's nothing, to, nothing to this. Uh, so, so yeah, sleep, sleep soundly at night, knowing that that's not a thing. I suppose you've had the experience, so we're relying on your testimony. <laughs> um, I suppose uh, the same arachnophobes don't want to know that spiders can fly, so we'll leave that alone. <laughs> We've talked about 
our perception of spiders, but how do spiders themselves perceive the world or even us? What senses do they rely on to survive and to thrive? Well, us humans, we're very visual animals. We rely a lot on what we can see through our eyes. Yes, we can hear and smell and taste and things, but overall we're very sight oriented. Lots and lots of spiders are have very, very poor eyesight. There are a couple of exceptions to that, but overall they rely on other senses and their main ones seem to be uh, things like scents or scent. So they will, will smell things, chemicals in the air and on the surface, but really importantly is sound. And I'm not talking necessarily about sound through ears. You probably haven't seen a pair of spider ears because uh, they don't really have them. I'm talking about sound through vibrations. So spiders sensing vibrations in the ground and vibrations through their silk, the silk in their webs. In your quest for a better understanding of spiders and more popularity, I suppose, too, um, you say that uh, a group of spiders called the jumping spiders is the gateway to spider addiction. At least part of the explanation of arachnophobia is in the way the spiders move. Isn't that a bit counterproductive? If you hear the word jumping spider and you think about something leaping towards you, all you really need to do is actually take a close look at a jumping spider and you will realize it's more of a, a cute little hop. These are very, very small, very, very furry, very cute animals. And uh, these jumping spiders are uh, the exception to the rule that I mentioned before in that they're very visual animals. So if you get up close to one and look at them, you'll see they have these two big, glossy, adorable puppy dog eyes that, that stare at you. And you know, these are, you know, when people think about spiders, they might think about a big hairy tarantula or a big leggy huntsman, but the most common type of spider is actually a jumping spider. There are more species of jumping spiders than any other type of jumping spider. So our, our stereotypical spider should be a tiny little fluffy kitten-like jumping spider. You refer to them or you describe them as charming. They are. And they almost kind of look into your soul a little bit. <laughs> you know, when you look at them, they'll sort of look back at you and, and, and look you up and down and then go about their way. They sort of tilt their heads side to side when they're looking at things. They have a very, very endearing look about them. And there's so many characters to choose from in the world of spiders. But uh, let's do brains before beauty and Porsche spiders, the smartest spiders in the world, you call them. Yes, yeah, so Porsche spiders are one of these adorable jumping spiders, and they've become famous for their intelligence. And scientists have been studying them to figure out how they manage to solve really complex problems with such little tiny microscopic brains. And so the reason that Porsche spiders need to be so smart is that they hunt other spiders. So they're predators like most spiders are, and they're predators that hunt other predators. So every time they have to get a meal, it's essentially putting themselves in danger's way. So they have to be smart to do that. And the way they do that can be anything. They can be sneaking up behind other spiders. They can be uh, you know, chasing them down. They might climb up above them and lower themselves down on silk. And this is evidence of their intelligence because they will look at a spider, assess what type of spider it is and choose what predatory tactic they're going to use before they go and attack it. And that takes a hell of a lot of you know, on the spot improvisation and forethought and stuff that we don't usually associate with tiny little invertebrates. 
And you seem to have had quite a bit of fun with that uh, that species of spider, the Portia spider. So they're so smart, in fact, that you dramatise their life in the form of this thing called the trials of Portia. I think many people assume that spiders are instinctive creatures, but you've drawn a far more complex portrait of life as a Portia spider. Yeah, I had a little bit of fun writing this chapter. If you remember from your childhood, those old choose-your-own-adventure books, you get to pick after every paragraph whether you flick ahead to page 16 or flick ahead to page 64 and you flick back again. We had a little bit of fun and I put together a choose your own adventure. So you get to put yourself in the spider's world and, and make some decisions yourself. Spiders have been observed entering some kind of REM sleep state. Does this mean that they dream? Jumping spiders have been observed. As, as far as we can tell, we, we think dreaming so we can watch spiders sleep they go into this resting posture where they hang from the webs and when these little jumping spiders sleep they move their eyes side to side back and forth really rapidly the same way that us and other mammals seem to do when we're dreaming so you know as you know we can't really get inside other animals brains and actually see what they're thinking but as far as we can tell from their outside behavior it's possible that spiders might actually dream. Let's turn from brains to beauty. The peacock spider, it sounds beautiful, but in one sense become a virtual rock star. How do you turn a peacock spider into a rock star? Social media, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, probably back in, I think, 2011, I think there was this sudden wave of peacock spider videos hitting the internet, I guess, digital photography and, and macro photography made it possible finally for hobbyists to start filming these peacock spiders. And what they did was capture for the first time the remarkable dance that a male peacock spider does. They lift up their abdomen, which as you can probably guess from their name is a bit like a, a peacock's tail and has this big technicolor had palette on the back of it that they wave around and then they also lift up their arms and wave those around so whenever they see a female they'll just start shimmying and shaking and, and moving back and forth and they're the most spectacularly colored vibrant things again something that you wouldn't necessarily picture in your head if you just thought of of the word spider they're they're absolutely gorgeous animals and if I may get you know, patriotic for a second, they're Australian. This is an Australian beauty story. Peacock spiders aren't an Australian-owned thing. I was also fascinated to read about the variety of silk and the way spiders use it. They're a creative bunch and marvellous engineers too. But you also write about the history and the science behind spider silk, and spider silk is known to have amazing properties. You've probably heard these ridiculous sounding comparisons that silk is you know, stronger than steel and you know, bulletproof like Kevlar. And when I first started hearing these things, I thought, all right, this, this has got to be a, some sort of exa an exaggeration. Uh, but it turns out it's not. It's actually true. So if you compare silk to things like steel and Kevlar, silk beats the might every time. And so people have been, once people discovered this, people have been trying to harness this power either by getting silk directly from spiders and trying to make things out of it or by making artificial silk in the lab and making things out of that. And this is a, a thing that's been going on for, for centuries, trying to harness the power of silk. We're not quite there yet. First thing that really got us interested in spider silk 
as a material that we can use was its, its strength and its flexibility. But the more people studied it, we also realized that there are these other strange things that silk does. It's really, really hypoallergenic. So if you put it on your skin, even if you put it under your skin, it doesn't seem to elicit uh, an allergic response in many people, which is, is more than you can say for lots of materials that they use in, in modern medicine to begin with. Strangely, silk also doesn't seem to grow bacteria on it. Go and look for an old spider's web and you won't see mold growing on it or, th or things like that. There's something about the surface of spider silk that inhibits bacterial growth. And so this has got people thinking, all right, maybe silk isn't just useful for its strength and flexibility. Maybe we can actually use it in medicine. So I've been trying to figure out ways of using silk as, so yeah, a scaffolding for implants or yes, as a, a, a structure to replace tendons as artificial tendons, maybe even as a coating for implants that we put in. There's actually a study looking at putting in little silicon implants in rats and we coat these silicon implants in a, a spider silk based material and they they don't seem to cause a, a a foreign body reaction essentially inside the rats so who knows maybe one day we'll be getting our silicon implants coated in in spider silk it's amazing stuff that's for sure so we've talked about all the wonderful things that spiders do but we've got to talk about venom um that's important Getting bitten by a spider is one of the great fears, but what's the reality? And supplementary question, would James Bond have died if he'd been bitten by that tarantula in Dr. No? <laughs> I'll answer that one first. Uh, no. <laughs> so tarantulas make great movie monsters because they're really pretty. They're big and hairy and they're quite often colourful. And they make for very good uh, film stars because they're harmless. Yeah, so, so he, he was perfectly safe having that tarantula on his arm. So that's why they stick them in, in movies. Uh, even if they, they, they have big, quite, quite pointy fangs, but their venom doesn't do a whole lot. So to your other question about how dangerous spiders' venom is, overall, it's not. It, it's spider venom you know, from most species will be a bit like maybe a little bee sting or wasp sting there'll be a bit of inflammation that bit of pain that's about it if but of course you know we want to get into the nitty-gritty of these dangerous spiders and if we want to do that that's when we have to start getting really uh nitpicky about these specific species that live in these very very small restricted areas uh, and there are really only a handful of maybe about five between five and ten species across the globe that we think are of any medical importance and things that, that a doctor or a GP would need to look out for. This is a book which is really in praise of spiders and justly so, but you also provide a really convenient guide to the treatment of spider bites, uh, which you've reduced to three criteria. Amongst those is this idea that we shouldn't kill the spider. Disclaimer first, yes, I am Dr. James O'Hanlon, not that kind of doctor. So these are these are not my criteria. These are criteria coming from medical professionals. And so if uh, you get bitten by a spider, the one thing that I would like you to think first and foremost is to catch that spider. If, if there's a spider on your arm, you see it bite you, you feel the bite, resist the temptation to thwack it with a newspaper, grab that spider. Now, the reason we say that is because if that spider bite does result in any sort of symptoms, anything that you might need to seek medical attention for, you can bring along that spider 
to the doctors and say, this is the spider that bit me. They'll be able to look at that and say, all right, that's fine. That's a, you know, orbo spider or something. Sit here, rest, we'll keep an eye on you. Or if they see it's something like, say, a Sydney funnel web, that's when they're going to go, all right, let's get you in. Let's get you a bed. Let's get some antivenom on hand. If you turn up to the doctors and say, I was bitten by a spider, or at least I think I was bitten by a spider. There was a brown thing and had legs. Yeah, you know, it might have been a spider. That's what happens a lot of the time. And that doesn't give doctors much to work with to help you. So that's the one thing that you need to do is catch that spider for proper identification. If you're a, a doctor or a medical expert that's trying to understand spider bites, it can be really tricky because that sort of thing happens a lot. People come in, they've got some welt on their arm. They think it's a spider bite, but they don't remember getting bitten. You know, it's, it's because people are so afraid of spiders and, and are worried about getting bitten by spiders. Quite often uh, uh, we blame spiders for things that might not necessarily be spider bites. So medical professionals have put forward these three criteria to positively uh, diagnose a spider bite. And uh, the first one is that you must have witnessed the bite in some way. You must have seen that spider on your arm at the time that you think you're bitten. The second criteria is that you have to have that spider identified, which is why you need to collect that spider and bring it to the doctors. And the third criteria is there must be some sort of symptoms from that bite be it pain, be it swelling, be it two little puncture marks on your skin. Uh, again, that comes from things like people will just see a spider on their arm and get scared and think that they might have been bitten. And so you will have, again, strange cases where people will turn up to the doctors and say, I think I've been bitten by a spider, but there's absolutely no symptoms. It might just be something that they've, they've, they fear, but they're not quite sure about. So there's three things. See the spider bite or witness the spider bite, have symptoms from it and have that spider ID'd. Very useful advice for spider lovers or those otherwise. And James O'Hanlon, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. I've been talking to James O'Hanlon about his new book, Silk and Venom, The Incredible Life of Spiders. It's published by New South and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.